I'm just going to share a quick little um, clip. Yeah, keep it simple. Stupid. I'm going to share a short little clip of Swamiji Sarva Priyayananda. He's talking about mindfulness, and he just credited uh, the Buddha with, um, I don't know, starting it, but neither here nor there. <clears throat> I'm going to play a little recording. Um, and Swami, of course, is better than I. He sees the benefits. I'm going to point out some of the hypocrisies. ...these days is um, so common. It's a very big phenomenon, and it's good that it is. But it's used for multiple purposes. Uh, it's used for uh, stress management. Uh, it's used for concentration, for focus for multiple purposes, and one can use it for that. Those benefits are definite. They do come in our lives. Uh, but one must be aware that these techniques were originally developed by spiritual seekers as a support for their spiritual quest, uh, as a medium, uh, as methods for the spiritual quest. Um, I am reminded of Maharshi Mahesh Yogi, who reputedly Several decades ago, when he came to New York, not very far from here, is Woodstock close by here? Yes. So he uh, propounded, he taught his, um, his technique of meditation, which came to be known as Transcendental Meditation, TM. And he told them, he told the people about its benefits. It was very popular, it continues to be popular. Let me just make a note that uh, he also patented patented what he was taught by spiritual seekers in India. He patented it in America and has still, I believe, um, sued people who try to use these techniques. And what's even worse is they were forced to have to share this information. Yeah, legally forced. And they still hide it. So what happened was I think it was 10 or 20 years ago, uh, because this information should be freely available, and they got sued. Uh, they were forced to share. Let me just tell you, Transcendental Meditation, it's simply, um, they will teach you what anybody will openly teach you on the internet. What they trademarked was giving you your mantra, your special syllable, your om, or your ah, or whatever it may be. <clears throat> so they were sued, and they had to put this up on the internet, and if you go and look, you're not going to find it anymore. So what it seems to have happened is they were forced by law to have to share this information, which isn't wrong. I've talked about this before. If they are such great guides, then you should provide the information for free because I've talked about this. Uh, it's been shown, anecdotally, that if you share this freely, people will be more apt to pay you for the instruction. Yet, here we go. Here's a perfect example I mean, TM is somewhat, but you know why it's somewhat popular? Because it's true believers and they advertise like crazy. I mean, that's how it works. The fees they pay into this company go back to support their website and for their advertising. And when you go and look up meditation, you're going to get this garbage come up. Um, you know, let's be honest. But we'll keep going here how it can help you to manage stress, how it can help boost your immune system, how it reduces the wrinkles on your skin and you look younger, and so on and so forth. Many... Oh, there you go. There's another example. 
There is no evidence that it's going to reduce the wrinkles. And let's be honest, how is meditation going to change your skin? It's not. It's not. But there's an example of why TM is probably uh, something most people should avoid. Uh, because you're going to get practitioners that, that's going to believe this sort of stuff, right? Now, Swamiji, he's may have been told this, and he doesn't know. He'll admit that he's not a scientist. But he also might be meaning that instead of grimacing all the time, you might be a little more relaxed. Or honestly, when you take up this lifestyle, like I said, nothing happens in isolation. So when you start meditating, you're also eating better and living better. That hydrating properly, that can get rid of wrinkles. Um, but we won't be attributing it to meditation, now will we? Now, the story goes that when he went back to India uh, to visit India, some of his brother monks, because he belongs to uh, a tradition of non-dualist monks um, who in the Himalayas there, so some of his brother monks, it seems they asked him, why do you tell them these things? That's not the purpose of meditation. The purpose of meditation is enlightenment, is moksha, liberation. So he, it seems he smiled and he said, I, I give them what they want so that they will want what I want to give them. <laughs> See, that's, <clears throat> we've listened to this a couple times. It's actually... Uh, not just a talk on mindfulness, but it is a guided uh, mindfulness meditation. And so there's two things there. He went back to these non-dualists. That's what Advaita means. It just means non-dual. So these Vedantins, uh, not dissimilar from the Buddhists, they don't feel that we don't deserve to be taught this. But what they were talking about here more specifically is, what are you doing only teaching them parts? Right? Because the Vedantins were saying, yes, it's fine to teach them some of these practices. And what's funny is if he was an Advaitin and non-dualist and went over and taught this, he just invented that for the most part. Right? He took from different traditions, on, no different from, say, Osho or Sadhguru. I mean, they're pulling from other traditions. The Rime movement, pulling from one tradition, but uh, mixing it to their own flavor. And it's interesting because I would agree that I think it's it's difficult to teach people a limited a limited uh, protocol, a limited prescription. But I really do enjoy how he responded to it because he's not wrong. So if you're talking about liberation, and in this case we're talking about giving up the material world, that's a hard sell. But if you start by selling the peace that comes from not attaching to every little thing that comes up, as he said, maybe they'll want what he wants to give them. So I find that funny. Right now, it's a way of enticing people into it. Right now, whatever we want, and it's, it's not false, it's true. Meditation does have those benefits. But the ultimate purpose is, is a very serious, very profound purpose for all of these methods. And that is spiritual awakening, realization of our true nature, freedom from suffering. That's something the Buddha and the Vijnana Bhairava and the Tantric meditation that we'll practice tomorrow and non-dualist Vedanta, all of them have in common. Overcoming suffering, a deep, lasting solution 
permanent solution to the problem of suffering. Well, I'll leave it at that because you'll, you'll probably keep going. But yeah, that's my point here. So these teachers, uh, it's gone the reverse. So he just gave an example of a teacher <clears throat> who was rebuked for not teaching the Enlightenment and only teaching the bare minimum peacefulness, as it were. Kind of what I've accused the, uh, the Burmese and the Thai and the Cambodian traditions, uh, only teaching the West, um, Shamatha, for example thinking we're not prepared for Vipassana. And it might be a reason why Vipassana has become so huge. But in this case, so here he says that he was teaching them just the beginning, hoping that they would understand what was there for them, and then they, he would uh, teach them about liberation. Right? The goals of the entire practice itself is with uh, liberation in mind. But this is my point. You can see here that, what, 50 years ago, it was the opposite. We had teachers that uh, understood or just were not teaching the complete system, just teaching people how to chill, relax, you know, not stress out, suffer a little less. Didn't go into the whole idea of complete and utter awakening and liberation. Now we have the reverse today. We have teachers who are claiming, some of them are even claiming, complete and full attainment, Others, awakening, enlightenment, arhatship, um, bodhisattva-ship, when they're obviously not. Yet, are they even teaching them the practice of chilling out and suffering a little less? Because as I just finished saying, more often than not, you're going to have a teacher who is just going to confuse this stuff. Right? I don't know how many times I'll have a teacher who taught a student, say, one practice. We'll say metta, because <clears throat> I just heard that last night. I think there was another question regarding that. You learn metta, and then you run into some problems. And he's like, I think the one guy said, well, I've been practicing a lot of metta. I might have done it reverse, but I think he was practicing vipassana, insight practice, and he was finding a lot of anxiety. So he switched to metta. All right, And the discussion... Right? And they'll offer, oh, well, maybe you should add this too. So instead of explaining that you need to find a path that suits you, what they're doing is telling them, no, this is the path. Right, In this case, he started, no, Vipassana, that's your way. Do it, do it, do it. And when he came up with a problem, they didn't explain their path if it's supposed to be a complete path. They didn't explain the path better. And just like martial arts, imagine this. If you go to learn karate... And you just can't, uh, just can't seem to win a match. Do you think your teacher is going to tell you, oh, well, you know what you should try? Add a little bit of judo and maybe a little Mai Tai. That, that'll really get you. That's not how it would work. Your teacher, your sensei, would actually have you go back to the drawing board. Work on what? Not a different practice, but on the upaya, the skillful means. Right? Same as another question. What was that? Um, I think I can even use the example of the anxiety. So how would this work? So say if he's chosen one practice, which I have mentioned some of them are missing with the complete, but I, let's just say that they're all complete packages. So in this case of Vipassana, I don't think he mentioned what tradition, but it doesn't really matter. Let's just say it's a tradition that treats 
teaches uh, following the breath and when you have no problem following that and then you look into nature of things, the insight, the nature of self. And So let's just say they're doing it all correctly. And he has this anxiety come up, which is normal. This is this dark night, the thing that I talked about, why I am open to some people who maybe misunderstand certain aspects but understand other aspects. This is this individual approach. I will take what works and leave the rest, right? Take the cannolis and leave the gun. So for me, here's really what I'm getting at. Okay, so instead of telling the man, well, that's your teaching here, bro. Vipassana is insight. What is this insight practice? You look at the nature of your anxiety. Your anxiety is rootless, groundless. So where is this anxiety coming from? If you're practicing insight, you use the anxiety as your object of, of concentration, as your object of meditation. But you don't tell him to try something different. Right? And that's where I'm starting to see these criticisms being leveled against the Western mindfulness as being maybe correct. Because they say that they're absolutely destroying the entire technique. Right? Because from a number of different reasons. But here's an example. He should be understanding that, that the very nature of Vipassana practice is this dependent origination of everything. Feelings are just an event. Understand where it's coming from. Don't give it the power to influence you. Certainly don't attach to it. Don't, you know, have the aversion. All this is in the teachings. But instead, he tells him to go and try metta. But what is this metta they're likely teaching? This is loving kindness. My apologies. Metta is loving kindness. It's one of the divine abodes, the Brahma Viharas. Right? And you can't really practice this alone. I find this absolutely ridiculous that they'll tell people, try metta practice or this practice or that practice. Metta and Karuna and Modita and Upeka. So equanimity, loving kindness, uh, equitable joy. That means um, vicarious joy. Like say if someone were to win the lottery and you didn't, if you could still be happy for them. That's the idea. They work together. But what they're teaching in a metta practice is, well, just give yourself that loving kindness. So what are they going to do? He's going to sit there and go, well, you're good enough and you're smart enough and doggone it, people like you, instead of looking at the source of his anxiety. And the reason why I mention this is because a teacher last night talks about taking all these different courses. And I, it made me realize I didn't take those courses, meaning he is even more ignorant than I, because he's been told, this is how you uh, use these practices. This is how you use this mindfulness-based, or there's, he, he mentioned a half dozen different practices Based on Buddhism, based on mindfulness, but it's put into a therapeutic aspect. So it's really vanillaized and stripped of all of its uh, uh, sufficiency. So challenge your anxieties. Right? How? How am I supposed to challenge my anxieties when you don't explain what dependent origination is and you don't explain emptiness because, like, nothing is permanent? You don't explain all of that. I'm just supposed to, well, challenge your anxieties because... Because why, bro? I lived it from the other side. I, I actually was a patient of these programs and saw their insufficiency, how they don't have the healing protocol. Right? He even said that talking about how you need to support patients till they can start using these and finding some benefit. What? So once again, he's talking about giving them pills. So here, 
He's selling people on mindfulness is the cure, but oh, I'm also doing psychotherapy, and oh, I'm also doing this, and oh, I'm also doing this. And now he's admitting that not only is a patient going to come to him, he's going to teach them meditation and mindfulness, and um, and he's going to use psychotherapy and all this. But when they first get there, if they're really bad, he's going to have to send them to a shrink to write a, a script for pills. So once again, he's nowhere near having the complete path. But I lost where I was going on that. Damn. And here I thought I did myself a disservice uh, um, cutting that off because I lost my train of thought. But no, it was perfect because we went on our walk, Con Krama, and uh, we actually did take a break and discussed this. So what my point was is uh, just as example, I've talked about, say, a practitioner. An example would be Osho, who will pride himself on the 200 and some different meditation techniques he's come up with. Uh, has he come up with or is he just outlining, you know, 200 different ones? Because, again, there's two sides to this, discussing, this discussion. Um, there are no end to these different uh, uh, efficient means, skillful means. But uh, at the same time, are we really going to allow someone to say that they've invented it themselves? But neither here nor there. What I come to realize is, like I said before, a practitioner who might... Oh, I, I have explained this earlier, right? If you were learning karate and you just couldn't seem to win a tournament, your sensei is not going to tell you to take up jiu-jitsu or boxing, or, you know. He's going to ask you to work on the core tenets. So this is the same that I will say. If you're a Freudian psychologist or a Jungian psychologist, I understand you want to, want to, want to bring in some other protocols. But again, here we're seeing that it's just, uh, it's word salad. It's copy pasta, right? Because I just spent the year plus taking all these same courses on every single aspect of mindful-based, uh, you name it. And yet, I've lived it as well as a patient. So I have, yes, I do have a better understanding of this, but, okay, twofold problem here. One, we don't have anybody who, when you're a teacher, and you say, well, my system is the way to go. Follow me while we go. You're not going to ask him to take up some other system, Right? I mean, arguably, you're not practicing in any particular system. But what I'm getting at here is it makes me frustrated to see when a psychologist will actually, you know, say, hey, this is what you need to do. And yet they're adding meditation and mindfulness and this and they're adding this and they're adding that. Isn't that really saying that your protocol just was deficient? And I'm seeing it because the people that are supporting some of these individuals are proponents or practitioners. Right? I mean the, the idea of acupuncture or controversial chiropractic. 
right? A lot of people believe them to be pseudosciences. If you look at chiropractic, some of them believe they can cure just about any uh, illness with an adjustment. Now, if that isn't crazy, I mean, homeopathy believes that they keep diluting it down till there's only the essence, which means there's nothing there. And yet that's the medicine, not the actual medicine. But again, my only issue here is why is nobody standing up and going, wait a minute here? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you giving us the answers we need or this protocol is deficient and yet you keep adding more protocols to it? If all of these protocols are deficient, what makes us think that bundling them all together is going to be more efficient? And yet at the same time, they'll recommend meta practice without explaining how important it is to understand compassion and equanimous joy. Uh, you know, this idea that I've explained before, that I went directly to Mahayanan and realized that without the basis, again, might be a surprise uh, to the practitioners of Buddhism that self-loathing can be a thing. But if you work on this, uh, I'm seeking liberation for all sentient beings, forget me. If you're operating on that assumption and you loathe your own individuality, not only is that reinforcing the ego, uh, but it's also defeating the purpose, right? Because that's why I went into the nature of self. Because when I went and realized right, what I needed to do, that all this was a test and I just needed to turn the same compassion and uh, bodhisattva, bodhicitta ideals back upon myself, of course I had to work on the self-loathing. What was the self-loathing? The self-loathing is holy that alaya vijnana. It is the storehouse of karma, those karmic seeds. It's funny how we don't understand this. The West hates themselves because we worship at the, uh, the altar of the ego. We're all idolatrists, and our idols are our own selves. There's nothing there. Yet we wonder why we all suffer from this great malaise when we are worshiping something that we all know does not exist. Yet, where are those that are admitting, like myself, that we're all just stumbling in the dark here? Some of us have figured it out a little better than others, um, but they're usually the most humble and the most quiet, unlike myself, uh, so we don't tend to get their guidance. And then, of course, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes the best practitioners are certainly not the best teachers, and often, more often than not, the teachers are some of the worst practitioners, So, and we know this. But there you go. I thought I'd wrap that up. I can't really remember what the initial beginnings on this uh, rambling was, but I'm working myself uh, up to sharing my individual journey, my own upaya, my own skillful, efficient means uh, with others. And maybe my journey will inform others. And if all of us were sharing our authentic journeys into the ether, then maybe there wouldn't be so much noise, uh, you know, if we'd stop self-censoring. We're all complaining about uh, external censorship, yet there's the number one thing that I had to learn. That self-hate, the self... Uh, uh, that was all just another defense mechanism of the ego. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you.